Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. After using the uh, Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 14. Genesis 20. Um, it is our, our practice, as you are familiar by now, to stand when we read God's Word. Uh, I will read the whole chapter, uh, so bear that in mind. So if you are able, uh, let me ask that you, are, you stand now. Let's stand together. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, uh, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see? That... And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought... There's no fear of God at all in this place. And they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. And then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, and male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you, dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given, uh, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, for your help. We want not just to hear this Word. We want not just to understand it better. We want instead for You to be at work in it, by it, using it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And it's in His name we ask it. 
Amen. You may be seated. Some of you uh, know this. Uh, Some of you will even doubt this assertion uh, from the very start. Uh, I I play golf. Okay. Uh, I have played golf. I used to play golf. Um, I played golf a week or two ago for the first time in, and I think like two years, maybe two and a half years. I think it was a long time. So maybe it's not really fair to use the present tense. I play golf. You know, there's a reason golf was given a four-letter word for a title. It's the best, worst game ever invented. I mean, you can understand why people call it a good walk spoiled, supposedly, Mark Twain. I'm not sure that's actually true. And the real problem with golf... My biggest, my biggest struggle with the game of golf, this may not be yours, my biggest struggle is when I hit a good shot. The worst thing I could possibly do is play the last hole really well. Because you know what that means, right? It means you've got to go back. And it means when you go back, which will probably be sooner rather than later, it means when you go back, you think to yourself, okay, the last hole I played last round was phenomenal. Tee shot straight down the middle. Beautiful approach shot right in the middle of the green, made a 12-foot putt for birdie. It was wonderful. So the first hole I play the next time I play golf should be just that good. That's the problem with the game of golf. You hit a great shot, and you're convinced if I can do it once, I should be able to do it every time. You ever have that thought about the Christian life? Have you ever thought to yourself, if I can, if I can, if I can not sin once, then surely I can not sin every time. If I can not yield to temptation here now once, then surely I can I cannot yield to it. Again, think of all the, the times in your life when, when times of peace and joy and, and uh, what really feels like a, a great open relationship between you and Christ and, and spiritually speaking, life is great. And then boom, trouble comes. That's when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, sin reaches up and grabs hold of you. That's when all of a sudden, trouble comes, doubt and fear, whatever the case may be, wrestling, struggling with sin. If I can do it once, surely I'll, I can do it again. Or, or surely if I cannot do it once, I cannot do it every single time. Welcome to Genesis 20. Welcome to Abraham's struggle. Because you read verses 1 and 2 and started to think, wait, wait, this sounds incredibly familiar to me. I swear, Jeff, you've done this before. 
you're in the wrong chapter, you're not paying attention, you've preached that passage before, you should actually be further into Genesis. Because I swear I've heard this. Notice the first thing Genesis 20 shows us is the sinfulness of the saint. You remember Abraham has been called by God. Back in Genesis 12, Abraham was called out of Ur, out of his homeland, away from all that he had known, away from his family, had been called by God and told, follow me, I will stop you when you get to the place I want you to stop. I'm not going to tell you where that is right now, but when you get there, I'll let you know. And I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, and you're going to have a whole bunch of children. Uh, I'm, giving you, I'm giving you place, I'm giving you people, and I'm giving you my presence. Abraham wasn't, at the time, looking for God. Abraham didn't find God. God went and got Abraham. That matters, right? God in His, in His sovereign grace and mercy and plan, He went and got Abraham and called specifically Abraham. Abraham's father was still alive at the time, but He called Abraham and, and took him to this new land, this new place. God called. Abraham has been called by God. That makes him a saint. I'm not using that word the way you might hear it in the Catholic Church. I'm not using that word the way you might hear it out there among some of your peers who are saying, you know, you're a really good person. That person's such a saint. She's a really great person. She doesn't do anything wrong. That, that's not at all the biblical image of a saint. Paul calls, as he writes the letter to the Philippians, he, he writes to the saints who were at Philippi. Abraham's a saint in the sense that he's been called out by God and, and, and brought into God's family as it were. And yet, you see his sinfulness in this passage. In verse 2, they get to this city of Gerar. And Abraham tells everyone there, Sarah is his sister. Yes, this is the second time. No, we're not repeating a passage we've preached before. Abraham's repeating a sin he's committed before. That's what really matters here. We've, we've been down this road back in Genesis 12, immediately after being called out of Ur, the very next passage. There's a famine in the land and Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt and the plan there was Sarah... Tell everyone you are my sister. Right on the heels of that first call by God to Abraham. Here's what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. Follow me. Boom, Abraham's in Egypt lying to Pharaoh about Sarah. Here in Genesis 20. Abraham's just prayed for Lot, his nephew. He's just prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's just interceded on that. He had this conversation, this face-to-face conversation with, with, with God Himself, with some pre-incarnate form of Christ. 
before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he actually, if you find 50 righteous people, would you do 45, 40? Worked his way down to 10. He had that kind of a, a conversation, um, an agreement of sorts between Abraham and, and God in that passage. In fact, we're told at the end of, of, near the end of Genesis 19 that Lot was spared on account of Abraham. That God remembered, he didn't remember Lot. He remembered Abraham and therefore delivered Lot. Right on the heels of that. Abraham and Sarah are in this new city, this new region, wandering, sojourning in this new area. She's my sister. It's, it's, it's half true, right? I tried to even, I tried, I don't know how well I did, I tried as I read the passage to read it like the, the Weasley man Abraham sounds like in verse 12. I mean, she, she technically is my half-sister. I mean, she's the daughter of my Father, but not the same mother. So we're half. It's not exactly all the way. You can hear the whiny, weaselly voice. It's 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 a very childish excuse he makes. I mean, she's she's my half sister. So technically, I wasn't exactly. It's a lie. A half truth is a whole lie. A partial truth is an all lie. And, and his whole point, the whole reason he's telling this lie, is his intent is to deceive. That's the only reason, that's the whole reason for saying that she is his sister. Abraham and Sarah work together, they conspire together to lie in this passage. But notice... Notice his sin is actually greater than that. It's not just that he lied. It actually is bigger and greater than that. Look at verse 11 through 13. Listen to the the explanation that he gives. Notice, Notice the personal pronouns. Abraham said, I did it. Because I thought there's no fear at all of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. Then she became my wife. God caused me to wander from my father's house. I Do you hear it? He's lying to protect himself. He's, in his lying, he has absolutely no regard for anyone other than himself. Lie, I mean, sin upon sin piled up on top of each, of, of each other. Had I, had I thought of it soon enough, I would have included... Uh, Westminster Larger Catechism question 151 in our uh, as an affirmation of faith today. I didn't think of it soon enough, so we didn't. 
Logic Catechism 151 asks, um, and it's a really super long answer, which is probably another good reason we didn't. What are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? What are the things that sort of aggravate sin so that some sins become actually more heinous than others? Now, don't hear... Is there some sins you can commit and not die? That's not what it's saying at all. The very next question says, what does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God, right? Every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. But what are the things that, that work together, that conspire together to make some sins more heinous than others? Three of the four categories are in this passage. He's piling aggravation on top of aggravation on top of aggravation. For example... Abraham is, at this point, pushing 100 years old. It's been 25 years since he was called out of her. 25 years he's been walking with God. 25 years he has been following God's lead. 25 years he's watched as God delivered him from Egypt. He's watched as God delivered Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. He's watched as God has provided for him over and over again. He's watched as Lot chose the good land and he got sort of what was left over and yet he's prospered. Because of his age, because of his years of walking with God, the sin, these sins are, are aggravated. The heinousness of this sin is aggravated. He's also violating an express letter of the law, breaking many commandments. The seventh commandment, which we read just a few minutes ago, if you have to be reminded, it's in your bulletin, thou shalt not commit adultery, didn't matter to him. Better to preserve my life than to, I don't know, keep God's law. Commit adultery, Sarah, let's just say you're my sister. Because that would be better, that would be safer than my death. Lying, the ninth commandment, doesn't matter at all to Abraham. He'll gladly tell Abimelech whatever, Abimelech, whatever he needs to say so that he can protect himself. Not only that, but there are, are aggravations for the heinousness of sin that have to do with the fact that Abraham is a model for us. I mean, think of all the times he shows up in Scripture. Think of, of all those who will look to Abraham. Paul, in fact, writes of him that Abraham was saved by grace through faith just as you are. He's set up as a model and yet he leads us down this road. In other words, if you can read the Westminster Larger Catechism back into Genesis 20, there's aggravation on top of aggravation making this more and more heinous even than the last time Abraham committed this exact same sin. But it gets worse. Because notice verses 12 and 13. 
does Abraham sound like to you? God caused me to wander. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to my wife, sure sounds like Adam, doesn't it? He points a finger at God. He points a finger. But Sarah's sharing in this too. She was a part of this. Don't leave her out of it. He sure starts starting to sound like Adam there in those verses. God kind of put me in this situation. Sarah's beautiful. He's made me wander. I've got to protect myself. It's not my fault. It's simple, really. If you had no context for Abraham and Sarah, if you had never even heard of a Bible before, if you hadn't been coming as we've been working through the first now 20 chapters of Genesis, if you picked up your Bible and just read chapter 20, you would say to yourself, I want no part of Abraham. That guy is scum. That guy is the lowest of the low. That guy has absolutely no morals. He's not the one you would want to work for. He's not the the classmate you would want to be friends with. There's absolutely nothing about him in this chapter up to this point that would make you say, Abraham's a good guy. Abimelech, I just don't know. There's nothing that would commend Abraham to you. We see the sinfulness of the saint, but notice we also see the saintliness of the sinner. For some reason my iPad's starting to do weird stuff. Um, Abimelech is, by the way, probably not his name. It's It's a title. There are other Abimelechs uh, it means my father is king. Um, and so it's probably a, a title, not really a name, but we're going to call him Abimelech anyway. Um, he's, he's an outsider. He's a foreigner. He's not been called by God. He's the ruler of this, um, this, this pagan country, and yet he acts more righteous than Abraham. You notice in verse 4, we're told, and, and this, is, this is Moses, this is the writer, this is the narrator inserting himself into the story again. So it's not just Abimelech pleading his innocence, innocence, although he does do that. The narrator confirms for us. Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, confirms for us Abimelech's innocence. Abimelech had not yet approached her. He hadn't done anything wrong. He had acted out of innocence. He had acted based on the information he had given. As God comes to him and says, you're in big trouble, buddy. And Abimelech goes, whoa, 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 hold on, time out. He told me she was his sister. She told me she was his sister. How am I supposed to know anything otherwise? And I haven't done anything. I haven't even touched her. I haven't, I haven't done anything at all. He recognizes, he pleads his, his innocence not through all of it. In fact, you can even hear, for as weaselly and whiny and childish as Abraham sounds, Abimelech sounds equally shocked. He sounds surprised in his response to God. 
you can almost hear him go, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? I mean, I, I don't even know what you're, what you're trying to say. He's, he's, it's like he's, you can hear the shock in his response and his voice. And you see what happens in verses 8 and 9. Abimelech is, uh, re- rebukes Abraham for his sin. He called together his servants and then he calls Abraham in and he rebukes him. What have you done? What is this you've done to us? What is this you've done to me? What have I done to you that would cause you to treat me like this? What have, what have I done to you that would cause you to bring this danger upon us? The ninth commandment is a bigger deal to Abimelech than it is to Abraham. When the world has a higher moral standard than the church, we're in big trouble. When the world looks at the church and says, y'all are immoral. When the world looks at the church and says, God's law says you're not doing. What God's law requires, you're not living. The way God's law describes godliness, you aren't it. When the world can outmoral the church, we are in bigger, we're in big trouble. That's exactly what happens here. Abimelech calls Abraham and says, You're immoral. You are unrighteous. You are ungodly. You are, though chosen by God, I don't know how or why. I see nothing. I see no reason for God to have chosen you, and I see no evidence of His choosing you either. There's that kind of judgment and evaluation of Abraham. Abraham willfully, purposefully, intentionally, premeditatingly violated the law of God. And then has Abimelech, this foreign, unbelieving king, call him to repentance. To have this foreign Gentile question Abraham's morality adds to Abraham's shame. Oh, that the church would never give the world the opportunity to call us to repentance, to point out the sins of the church. Remember, Abraham kept using these singular personal pronouns. He kept saying, I, 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 me, me, me. Abimelech has a a higher view of covenant community than Abraham does. Everything Abimelech talks about is plural. Everybody, everywhere along the way, he says, what have you done to us? How could you bring this on us? Even in his response to God, would you really destroy an innocent nation? Would you really destroy all of us because of one man's sin? He understands Covenant responsibility. He understands the notion, the idea of covenant community. 
that flies in the face of everything about Western individual culture. But we would do well to master plural personal pronouns. We would do well to recognize the impact, the effect of our actions on others in our family and in our covenant family. We would do well to to learn to master plural personal pronouns. We see the sinfulness of the saint. We see the saintliness of the sinner. But notice finally that there is the sovereign salvation of a Savior. In verse 3, God tells Abimelech there's danger. Abimelech had no idea. He was oblivious to the reality of Abraham and Sarah's relationship. He was oblivious to the fact that she really was his wife and not just his sister. He was oblivious to the danger and the threat to himself and to his people. Except that God intervened and showed it to him. God comes to Abimelech in a dream and he says, you're in big trouble because this woman that you've taken, she actually is someone's wife. God intercedes. God interjects Himself. God puts Himself in Abimelech's life to point out His danger, to call Him to recognize just the struggle that He is about to face. For that matter, verse 6, the only reason He hasn't touched her, the only reason He hasn't approached her is because God has kept him from doing so. It's not his, it's not Abimelech's righteousness. It's not Abimelech's goodness. It's not that Abimelech took the high moral road. It's that God kept him from this sin. I know what you're thinking. At least I hope you're thinking this. My first sort of thought, my first realization at that idea. If God prevented Abimelech's sin, why not prevent Abraham's? If God would keep Abimelech from committing sin, wouldn't it have been a whole lot easier if he just kept Abraham from sinning? And then we could cut a whole chapter out of the book of Genesis. We could just cut chapter 20 right out of there. We wouldn't need it. If God had just kept Abraham from committing sin the same way He prevented Abimelech from sinning, then we wouldn't even need this chapter. Or perhaps more importantly, if God can and will prevent Abimelech from sinning, why won't He do that for me sometimes? Why does He let me run headlong into sin? Why does He let me run headlong into willful, premeditated violation of His law? See, that seems like a pretty good opportunity for God to put up a wall and say, stop right there. Here's what we're given. Here's here's what we, we know. God prevents 
God allows for our good and for His glory. That's what we have. For that matter, you don't actually know how many times He does stop you. Just think about that for a second. You think, well, as many times as I... As I've sinned in the last 24 hours, if He's actually stepped in and stopped me at all, whoa, I could have been in really big trouble. Sometimes God in His mercy and grace will choose to step in and prevent sin. Sometimes He will allow it and allow us to run headlong into it for His glory and for our own good. There's a, there's a twist at the end of chapter 20. A twist in verse 14 that I'm not sure you would see coming. A twist that quite honestly makes... I, I'm, not, I'm still not totally sure I understand. Thus far, for the first 13 verses of this chapter... Abraham is the bad guy. Abimelech is the good guy. And yet, Abraham is rewarded with lavish gifts from Abimelech. Sheep, oxen, male and female servants. For that matter, he actually looks at, looks at them and says, there's my land Pick a spot to live. Take some acres, build a house, it's yours. Take your pick, I'm not going to tell you where to go, doesn't matter to me, sounds great. You almost get the sense that he's given him a, a level of citizenship in Gerar. Oh, and a thousand pieces of silver. That, that, that's the opposite end of, of Genesis 12, do you recall? Basically, Pharaoh runs him out of town. He throws things at him, and he basically says, Wife, take, go. It's, it's that kind of language. Here, however, he's actually blessed with land, with, with money, and with all kinds of, of material goods. I'm not totally sure... I even understand that. Except that isn't that the picture of salvation? There's absolutely nothing in this chapter that would commend Abraham to you, much less to God. And our standards aren't perfect. Our standards aren't be holy as I am holy. Our standard is be better than a lot of my other friends. I mean, for us, that's kind of good enough. We'll, you know, kind of run out there to the track and the hurdles, and, and the hurdles for the 400-meter hurdles are different from the hurdles in the 100-meter. We'll go lower them. We'll drop them down a little bit. If you can clear this bar, we're okay. Now, you may not be okay with God, but if, I can, if you can clear this lower hurdle, we're kind of okay. There's nothing in this chapter that commends Abraham to you, much less to God. And yet, despite all of that, he's rewarded lavishly with all these gifts. Why? 
it's clearly not because of Abraham's goodness. The answer lies not in Abraham, but in God, who had made a covenant vow to Abraham and to Sarah, and who would not let Abimelech or Abraham bring that promise down. He's going to bring that promise to completion. He's going to make sure that Abraham is given descendants, that Abraham has a son, that Abraham becomes the father of nations, that that from Abraham, for that matter, the Redeemer, the Messiah would come. His promises, His purposes, His plans cannot be stopped by unbelieving outsiders or by sinful insiders. There's nothing that will stop God's plan. Abraham's own failure here couldn't thwart God's purposes. Abraham doesn't deserve the reward he gets. He reserves he deserves the exact opposite. He doesn't deserve the reward he gets. Isn't that true of every believer? Isn't that true of you and me if we trust in Christ? We deserve question 152 in the larger catechism. What does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. That's what we deserve. But because of Christ, through Christ, we receive the blessing of life everlasting in the very presence of God. None of us in our own flesh deserves the reward that we get. Let me make just a couple of applications from uh, this passage. Notice, um, first of all, verse 6. We read a few minutes ago as our confession of sin, uh, we used the entire Ten Commandments. You and I tend to think of the first four commandments as being our responsibility to God, and commandments 5 through 10 as being our responsibilities to each other. The first four, we break them, we sin against God. The last six, we break them, we sin against man. That's not true. Notice verse 6. God said to Abimelech in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from sinning against not Sarah, not Abraham, me. Every violation of all ten of God's commandments is a sin ultimately against Him. Not against just other people. We need to recognize that um, we, need, we need to recognize sin for what it is in its, in its gravest form. It is always a shaking of our fist at God. It is a form of cosmic treason. We look at God and say, I don't like your way. I like my way. And so I'm going to do it my way, not your way. Regardless of which of those ten commandments we break. Second application. 
Um, how did Abraham and Sarah decide what they would say when they entered Gerar? Did you, did you notice it, verse 11? Abraham I said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham assumed some things about this place, about Gerar. He made some assumptions about what they would be like. And, and in order, therefore, to protect himself, he decided, I'm going to live by sight and not by faith. I'm going to violate God's word because, quite honestly, at this point, prudence says I should. It would be wise of me. It would be practical of me. It would be rather pragmatic of me to, at this point, for now, I'm going to set God's word aside because quite honestly, I'm not, it, that's not going to matter to these people. And so I need to, I need to do some things my way for a second. And, and then I'll go back to God's, that's not at all how you and I are called to live. Don't let human wisdom replace a commitment to God's law. His word. We say this in the Psalms. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Not my great ideas are a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Oh, that we would submit to God's word at every turn. Even when human wisdom seems to warn us otherwise. A third application. I suppose if God's purposes can't be stopped, and if my own sin can't prevent God from fulfilling His promises, if my own sin won't get in the way of God accomplishing His purposes, maybe I should sin some more. Maybe I should do more of that so that God can prove His power despite my disobedience. This, is, this sounds like a good idea to me. I'm starting to like this. If I sin more, then God can prove His commitment to His purposes and His plans regardless of my obedience and my response to Him. So, yeah, I think we should sin more. I think that would be a really good idea, isn't it? Paul addresses that, by the way. If grace abounds, then let's sin all the more. May it never be. God forbid. Notice Abraham's sin finds him out. Even at his old age, even right around a hundred, for his good and for God's glory. God gets the glory because... There's nothing here that commends Abraham to anyone, and yet God still accomplishes his purposes. But it also works out for Abraham's good. Sin, our sin, is uncovered for our own sanctification. Our sin many times comes out into the light for our own growth as Christians. 
so that we might grow to hate our sin all the more. So that we might grow to love Christ and the cross all the more. So that we might grow to to desire more deeply obedience to our Father. For that matter, Abraham is going to show up dozens and dozens of times between now and the end of Revelation. We still have several chapters of Abraham to go through in Genesis. He shows up in several places in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, in Galatians and Romans. He he comes up over and over again. Guess how many times this sin is mentioned? If you said zero, you'd be right. God uses this to deepen Abraham's faith and love to God. But also to remind Abraham and us, like we said last week, there's only one thing God forgets. It's the sin of His people. As far as east is from west, the depths of the sea, the only thing that I know of that God ever forgets in the entire Bible are the sins of those redeemed by Christ. Be encouraged. Be comforted by that truth. And may this actually drive us to recognize our own insufficiencies, our own inadequacies, and to deepen our love and dependence on Christ and grow us in holiness. Let's pray together.